Lights, camera, action. Welcome to Mixed Take, a world outspoken podcast where we discuss how the mixing of cultures and heritages in America influence film, television, and other forms of media and entertainment. So don't be surprised to hear us laughing and geeking out over the movies and shows that we cover. We hunt Demogorgons, yep. want to one day move our families to the Shire, and still <laughs> dream of a world led by Daenerys Targaryen. That's right. I'm Robert Rivera, and I'm joined by my slightly cooler co-host. Actually, let me step back and say she's so cool, she wears a hoodie at all times. <laughs> Hey, I'm Dani Alicea, and today we're excited to talk about Guillermo del Toro and how his rich Mexican culture and love for foreign horror films, which we would just say is movies. So we're excited to talk about his influence on the film industry. Yeah, I'm excited. This is going to be a really great topic. I started watching a bunch of his movies, and I have not slept since. <laughs> the horror of it all. Yes. So our quick takes. What's your quick take, Robert? My quick take is very simple. It is that Guillermo del Toro creates movies about monsters to help him make sense of the world. My quick take isn't so quick because, nope. <laughs> because this dude is hey. so cool. So if I have to summarize Guillermo del Toro, a.k.a. Big G, a.k.a. Poppy G. G, a.k.a. Mr. T. It's what they call him on the streets, right? <laughs> Big G. Big G, Mr. Delty. Yeah. Okay, I would say that his cinematic works, they are both beautiful and haunting. So if you think of like Pan's Labyrinth, The Shape of Water, in both of these worlds, what we would call monsters, they're just really misunderstood creatures that are villainized. Yeah. So what Del Toro does is he pleads the case for these so-called monsters. And rather than building walls or closing doors, Del Toro suggests an alternative solution that's always majestic, that's always beautiful, it's always peaceful, and that's always loving. So Del Toro, he really just asks us the question, who are the true antagonists? Is it just the people or the things that we don't know and understand? It's more than that to Del Toro. Yeah, definitely. Those are good points. I can't wait to dive into this. Now it's time for pre-production and runtime. This is the part of the show where we look at the life and the career of Guillermo del Toro. All right. So if we if we got to look at del Toro, uh, he he's definitely strange, but he's no stranger to Hollywood. His resume is overflowing with critical acclaim. I mean, this guy has box office hits and even a cult following that you recently started, right, Robert? I did well. <laughs> Not so much, but you know. So titles in his repertoire include smaller works like Kronos and The Devil's Backbone, and then well-known box office hits that we know as Hellboy, Pacific Rim, and like I previously mentioned, The Shape of Water and others. Yeah. Um, so Guillermo, he definitely, I would say, has a, an obsession with monsters. I think we'd all agree, if you know anything about him, even in his home, he's got monstrous things and works, and, and literally his mansion is dedicated. It's called the bleak house and it's every yeah. horror person imaginable that he lives with can you imagine a kid just getting up in the middle of the night to get some water and walking through that living room no and i'm sure when he was a kid that would have been like the last thing he wanted but as we'll come to find out monsters are his friends <laughs> exactly uh, so when he was a child what he described as lucid dreams where he would make deals with monsters he asked them for things like protection when he went to the bathroom at night I don't remember making any deals with monsters, but this is a really good idea. Like, he's super onto something here. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was as smart and creative as this dude. 
So ever since then, he's not only sought out monsters in film, but he's also brought them to the screen himself to honor his pact with them. That's pretty wild to think about. Honestly, just a real quick confession here. I actually had lucid dreams as well growing up, but they were nightmares. I didn't make pact with the monsters. Instead, I started to pray. And I would say, Lord, wake me up from this dream. Wake me up from this dream. And uh, over time, broke my, uh, I don't know what you would call it, the haunting that would happen at night. Yeah, it's definitely haunting. I think everyone is, at least at some point, you're a little afraid of the dark because you just don't know what's out there. Or especially if you see something scary, like under the bed, who wants to get out? Like, is there a hand that's going to come out and grab me? I don't. Right. It never happened, but you always think it might. Exactly. Monsters (laughs) in the closet. Exactly. Oh, the closet. Yeah. Yeah. See, in Chicago, we have such small closets. It was like, ain't no monster living in there. I know. (laughs) All my clothes, all my toys, all my shoes. Under the bed was my scary spot. Exactly. What would really happen was we would suffer for not cleaning the room like we were supposed oh. to because every <laughs> sock and toy on the floor turned into some kind of creature. But um, <laughs> Right on. So you sit there and you break night because you're like, I, I don't want to fall asleep in this. Oh, my goodness. And if y'all aren't from Chicago and you don't know what break night is, that means you stay up all night. Exactly. You know, speaking of break, everybody needs a big break. Right, right, right. Yeah. And at 29 years old, Guillermo's first cinematic acclaim came in the form of a small movie called Kronos. It's about an old antique collector that stumbles upon a device shaped like a golden beetle that latches onto his arm, and then it grants him youth and eternal life. And when I say latches onto his arm, it is a grotesque kind of latching. And of course it would be a beetle. Beetles are just so nasty. It's like a more demented version of that beetle in Aladdin that kind of led them to the Cave of Wonders. Yeah. It reminded me of that, but just a little bit stranger. (laughs) And while the film is strange and, by the way, fascinating, Mm -hmm. what's even more fascinating to me about this Dorian Gray-type movie is Del Toro's direction. Mm. While the movie stars Spanish actor Federico Lupi, who does not actually speak a word of English in the film, It co-stars actor Ron Perlman from Hellboy, and he barely speaks any Spanish in the movie. They kind of go back and forth. He speaks in English. They respond to him in Spanish. Uh, Very interesting. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, this movie, I think, foreshadowed what Del Toro would later contribute to Hollywood. Basically, freaky bilingual movies. Which is so interesting because I think especially with American films, we really steer clear of different languages. Yeah. If it's like something with a subtitle or something like that, it's like, uh, even Netflix knows our propensity to not watch things with subtitles in different languages. Yeah. So there's great shows like Dark on Netflix, which is in German, but they'll have the dubbed They're over dubbed, English. yeah, definitely. And so even then, it's really in another language, but they still offer it in English. English yeah. for us, which yeah. I love that Guillermo del Toro, he challenges us on that. Yeah, he does. And forces us into a world, which is really a world where we live, where there's people that speak other languages and we need to get comfortable with that. And instead of demonizing yeah. people that look different, sound different, embracing them and Preach. letting that be part of our culture. No, definitely. Mestizo, baby. <laughs> Staying on brand. I like that. Yes. So del Toro, he grew up Catholic. Super interesting because his upbringing really led him to view some interesting things about the Bible and about Catholicism. For him, it was really a morbid world. So he went to church and then he saw these statues of gargoyles, which are beastly. Yeah. Strange and scary. He also believes that angels and demons are mythological and told Charlie Rose in an interview, and I quote, we have to mythalize the universe to digest it. Um, He saw a blood-drenched Jesus displayed on the walls growing up, and while we don't come to the same conclusions as him, 
we perhaps done maybe a disservice either sanitizing or sensationalizing the Bible, making things a little bit too palatable, making Jesus maybe a little bit too soft and not maybe confronting some of the things that the way del Toro does. So for him, he would say, I'm an atheist, thank God, which is super ironic. <laughs> right. And however, despite his resistance to all things Christianity, his biblical influence really, you can't escape it in his films. No, definitely. It is a challenge for us to consider how, how we're presenting scripture. Like, does Christianity equate like family friendly? I've always wrestled with this idea because hmm. a lot of times it's like, yeah, Christian, it's, it's family friendly. Bring the whole family to, if it's a Christian movie, the assumption is everybody can watch it all ages. Mm. But the world is messy and the world deals with a, a lot of hard issues. And so I've often wondered, you know, the Bible itself talks about some very difficult things. And I think even our, our understanding of what family friendly is, if we look to the Bible to tell us, okay, what is family friendly? Like in order to learn about redemption, we need to first learn about the heinous sin that separates us from an everlasting, a good, a perfect God. But introducing that sin to and and you don't even really need to introduce it you know as a parent right. like exactly. your kids are going to sin like yeah. you don't need to teach them that that it's not like unicorns and clouds and cotton candy it's the hard stuff and it's the discipline that should be like family friendly it's these difficult conversations about life and death and loss and tragedy that really teaches i think and creates good people that are, are and believers that influence culture in a really beautiful way rather than like running from it and putting blinders on you know I'm not going to pay attention to these things let's hit it head on and talk about it and have interesting thoughtful dialogue about issues yeah and I, I think for him maybe he he saw the exact opposite of that where the sensationalizing yeah. of, oh. of the violence or presenting yeah. this very bloody and beat up Jesus those things without Really fleshing out the character of who God is, who he is, you know, at the core. Wow, that's, wow, that's deep. And so we see it in his films, right? Kronos is a callback to his religious roots. Mm -hmm. The protagonist is named Jesus Gris, or in English, Jesus Gray. Which you can't get, like, more exactly. Christian well, than that. Right. It's like, okay, mm, I wonder bro. what this guy is like. <laughs> right. Right, the character resurrects from the dead after three days, and is, he has wounds in his, in his feet like Jesus. And then the gray part, he obtains an object that gives him youth and, and immortality like Dorian Gray. Mm -hmm. And like I said, the film opens the door to his other works, The Devil's Backbone, which deals with ghosts and purgatory. Hellbone, Hellboy, I should say, <laughs> is a half-demon superhero fighting desperately against a dark destiny. And Pacific Rim is about protecting the earth against great monsters that rise up from beneath the sea from another realm. Other films dealing with this subject matter are Crimson Peak and Pan's Labyrinth. And in 2018, the year that Coco, great movie, Coco. Such a good movie. Love that movie Coco. so much. Yes. In that year that Coco won Best Animated Feature, Guillermo del Toro won Best Director for The Shape of Water, which also won Best Picture. Phenomenal. Needless to say, Phenomenal. that was an iconic year for the Latinos. Hey, huepa. That's what I'm talking about. Oh. <laughs> now, Del Toro says that monsters always represent something else. Mm -hmm. Pacific Rim's kaiju are re a reimagining of the traditional kaiju that we all know and love. Yes. Like Godzilla. Godzilla. Yeah, Gojira. 
There you go. Gojira. And that what he's like, Gojira, Gojira, let them fight. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The monsters in Pacific Rim seem to represent the Earth's revenge against pollution and global warming. Sometimes they're more subtle in his other movies, you know, so they're not always so on the nose. Oftentimes, the creatures are not the monsters in the movie, but rather the true monsters are found in the human antagonists. More on that in a bit. Donnie, as Latinos, we've grown up around Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Can you see where Guillermo is coming from in terms of feeling like Catholicism is morbid? Absolutely. I mean, especially as he's like talking about the gargoyles, the bloody beat up Jesus that is literally in every Catholic church and is the biggest figurine in the place. Yeah. And is like really colorful too. Like the stained glass is gorgeous, but it's horrifying. Like I don't I didn't ever thought about it in his terms because you know we grow up around it. So it's like, oh yeah, that's just how it is. But if you don't look at it as it is, but maybe as it should be or, or should be yeah. explained even, especially to people that are so little and impressionable. Yeah, I think it just goes back to that idea that he was handed a version of the Bible really that was void of relationship with a very personal God. Yeah. And so from the outside with the horrific, maybe some of these, he wasn't actually afraid of the gargoyles. He was fascinated. That's what he was looking for. He would go and he's like, oh, I want to see the monsters. Yeah, yeah. That is, to me, a very interesting approach to going to church. Yeah. You want to go to church? Yeah, I want to see the gargoyles. <laughs> and what I love about Del Toro is as much as he wants to, you know, divorce himself from the church, the redemption value that he brings to horror is literally, you know, any good story is a reflection of the greatest story, which we would say is Jesus. Yeah. And so his good stories or, you know, his awesome stories are reflections. So the redemptive value in like the shape of water with the amphibian man, he is like, it's just really beautiful to see like he can't get away from the cross in his storytelling. The fact that what we would demonize or put down or call monstrous or whatever, there's like redeeming factors to yeah, those individuals. No, for sure. For sure. Kronos also set up Guillermo's propensity to mix cultures. Mm. That's the other interesting part. Here's how this movie plays out. The opening credits are in Spanish, but lead to an English voiceover prologue. Mm. Just like goes from one to the other. The movie fluidly, as I mentioned before, dances between Spanish and English throughout. In the same way, Guillermo has had box office success in English and in Spanish and addresses various social and religious issues within them. Oh, cool. This guy's awesome. I'm such a fan. Maybe you're the one that's starting that cult. I, <laughs> definitely. Look, yeah. I am the president. and I don't remember starting it. And <laughs> all of a sudden, you're speaking as if you're the... This guy's awesome. Okay. Okay, so Pan's Labyrinth. That one, I would say, exemplifies the themes like the misdirection of monsters or even the misunderstanding of them. So though the fawn is hideously warped and twisted, he's a friend. And he yeah. also leads Ophelia. He's a friend with a very great voice. Okay, I see you, Robert. <laughs> Get it? Yeah. So the true monster in Pan's Labyrinth isn't these creatures that we no. see, isn't even the pale man, even though no. he like bites off the head of a couple fairies. But the true monster is the general as his hideously warped and twisted heart yes. unfolds throughout the movie. 
He's hard to watch. He really is. I, I mean. He's mean. <sighs> he's a meanie. It's interesting how Captain Vidal, he just has no regard. Spoiler alert is coming if you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, which you should. Um, but even he shoots a little girl. Poor Ophelia. Come on. Cap. Anyway. So the movie, beautiful. It's beloved. This beautiful movie where this little girl gets shot. I know. Uh, in the, it, it's, it's a happy ending, though. Really, it is. But apparently, studios offered Guillermo incentives to make the movie in English, which he didn't. He stood with the Spanish language, which I yeah. think added to the beauty of the movie. I remember when it came out and, you know, it was nominated for all these awards. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to see this movie. And I was so thankful, even though my American apprehension was like, oh, it's in Spanish. I'm going to have to read subtitles. It was so beautiful. In Del Toro fashion, it's made exactly the way he imagined exactly. it to be. It was dark. It was tragic. It makes us deal with deeper things that we have. Uh, again, like these issues of who is the real monster? Who is the real antagonist? Is it the being that we don't understand? Or is it this person in a position of power and influence who is wielding it to be basically a dictator and a murderer? Just phenomenal absolutely loved his presentation and uh what he what he forces us to deal with in pan's labyrinth yeah definitely did you know by the way that you know the backdrop of that movie is the spanish civil war yes sir and that devil's backbone devil's backbone right devil's backbone pan's labyrinth and uh apparently some movie he hasn't made yet oh. would be like kind of this this trilogy of movies that take place during the spanish civil war it's super interesting that Guillermo del Toro is fascinated with the Spanish Civil War in large part yeah. because he finds the Catholic Church culpable in all of the devastation and, and the murders and all that stuff. Again, it all speaks to his view on Christianity, Catholicism. Can't get away from it. Yeah, his atheistic views and the way that he portrays Christianity in the movies. Well, even with the box office success of um, his English films, Del Toro remains faithful to diversity in his films. Pacific Rim highlights a diverse cast. If we step back from the set, we realize that Del Toro is all about collaboration, and it, this influences the way that he creates. His friendships with fellow Mexican Hollywood directors Alejandro uh, Iñárritu and Alfonso Cuaron keep him from creating in a bubble. Apparently. Uh, Cuaron came on set of Pacific Rim and suggested a line. It was a lame line, but <laughs> suggested the line. He was like, that's perfect. Yeah. And he took it. Yeah. When he revealed it in an interview, I was like, oh, okay, that's it. But, but <laughs> it does let me know that he is sharing his work with his fellow producers and, and directors. Yeah. And so he's not in any way assuming that he has all the answers, but he's open to hearing critique from his peers. Yeah, that's awesome. So if the monsters are uh, <laughs> are symbolic, then we could probably spend, you know, so many hundreds of hours looking at the allegory in his films. So there seems to be really significant Definitely. symbolism um, of the creature in the shape of water, which we talked about a little earlier. Yeah. yeah. So you pointed this out. This amphibian man is pulled out of the river in South America. Right. Dragged to the United States. Yep. He's imprisoned. Yeah. They did tests on him, all kinds of stuff. So despite the creature's apparent intelligence, it was regarded as a monster because it looked different and didn't speak English and particularly yeah. had darker skin. 
Are, are you telling me that, that our boy in the shape of water is Latino? <laughs> our guy is Latino. Who knew? So the captors, they were afraid of the unknown. And I, I think, you know, ugh, if we're honest, the fear of the unknown is something that we're all guilty of. Definitely. So it's... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's just the fallibility of man. It's the sinfulness of our hearts. We're prone to mm -hmm. we're prone to judge. We're prone to put people in boxes. As humans, we're prone to try to understand the world that we live in. And then we start to make assumptions. And then we start to make even racist assumptions, which is what's yeah. happening all over. And Del Toro bravely, I think, takes the stance of, okay, we're going to tell these stories in a way that's engaging, that's beautiful, but that's also honest and displays deep hurt that we all deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So in The Shape of Water, I think one of the worst parts is that the antagonist of the film consistently uses scripture to yeah. justify his evil deeds. So he's fixated on the fate of Samson, how he gouged out his eyes, the death of the Philistines, and then, you know, he just basically uses that to say the the killing of of others is essentially justifiable we see this in history with the crusaders using the cross for their heinous crimes and actions yeah to justify slavery oh to my goodness, yeah. to wipe out native americans wh whatever yes. it may be you know we've seen it throughout time where yes. the bible is used to justify evil terrible yeah terrible act yes yeah definitely it is rather disheartening that Del Toro's outlook on Christianity is so bleak, but perhaps his loss of faith in the church has influenced his work the most. He mm. treats the supernatural as merely mythological. There is also no redemption or forgiveness for the malice carried out by the evil ones with the general, the captain or whoever, the real monsters throughout these films, the antagonists. There is no redemption for them. Mm -hmm. They die. Mm -hmm. There is no hope for them in his films. Glad he didn't uh, direct Star Wars. Darth Vader <laughs> well, well, would, well, the, the hope, though, is in the monsters. There's always redemption, like the amphibian man, who we would have discarded uh, just like, what is uh, Strickland? Bad government agent. Oh, okay. You know, like that right. government agent would, okay. would have quickly discarded the amphibian man. But we, you know, see like, oh, no, there's actually redemption for, for this guy that seemed to be a lost cause. Yeah, definitely. I was listening to some other podcasts about The Shape of Water uh, before, and I heard it pointed out, though, that forgiveness is just not really a part of any of his narratives. That is very true. And honestly, at the end of the movies, so true. I'm not sad Yeah. when the antagonists are killed, mm -hmm. you know, when they're taken away or mutilated or whatever happens to them. Because in my mind, I'm like, they deserve that. Absolutely. However... Again, you can see that Christianity is not informing his opinion on this. Yeah. Because we really believe in a bigger picture. And if we didn't, then just imagine our view of the Apostle Paul, who was mm. once known as Saul, right? And mm -hmm. went out, dragged people out of churches and stoned them and imprisoned Christians. And yet there's forgiveness, there's redemption for him. Mm -hmm. And that narrative is just absent in Del Toro's works. Fascinating. So, Donnie... I know that you're mixed. You have both Puerto Rican and Mexican roots. Ew. Okay? <laughs> both inform your identity. <laughs> but I'm sure that rather than being at odds with each other, you've seen a mixing of both heritages in your life. Yeah, you know, it's funny growing up to have pasteles and tacos in yeah. the same meal was like super normal. Yeah. Uh, you have Puerto Rican rice and a burrito. You probably mix it all together. You probably put the Puerto Rican rice in a tortilla. 
And I never knew it was weird until probably college. I had friends come over and it was one of our like just normal meals where there's you have Puerto Rican dishes and you have Mexican dishes. And they were like, oh, my goodness, this is like so different. And I was like, is it, though? Yeah. Because <laughs> for me, it wasn't different. That's just how it was. Yeah. So it's really sounds great. It's so good. Sounds amazing. Because you get the what the, time is dinner. <laughs> you get the benefits of kind of a Caribbean style of food with plantain and yeah. rice and chicken and, and meats cooked in just delicious ways. And then you get Mexican food, which is more the tacos and the burritos. I never thought about the fact that I was from two different places yeah. until it was pointed out to me. So interesting. Yeah. So it's probably very comparable to Guillermo, like yeah. know, growing up as a Mexican, coming to the States and being mm -hmm. a Mexican immigrant, but always having this fascination and love for horror. Yeah. His two worlds of being a Mexican man and being a lover of film and storytelling and horror just blends and has yeah. given us beautiful works. Yeah, he uses horror to kind of tell stories of immigration, right? With The Shape of Water, mm -hmm. kind of bringing up some of those topics. I think is really working through some of his own hurts and pains mm. when it comes, like we said, with Christianity and things like that or Catholicism. Mm -hmm. But then he's also true to saying, I'm going to make some movies in Spanish. I don't care. And forcing the culture, right, to say, I don't think that it's right if we're all trying to be the same. Mm -hmm. Rather... Let's embrace our differences, and I'm going to make a movie in Spanish. I want you to celebrate that. Yeah. You know, Shape of Water won a lot of awards, but I don't know. Pan's Labyrinth, to me, is But even the gold if you think standard. of the, the Shape of Water, Miss Esposito, the main character, mm -hmm. she doesn't speak English either. She's right. ASL, American Sign Language. Exactly. Yep. And the amphibian man, he doesn't speak English. No. He speaks maybe Spanish, if that's – or, or Amazonian. Like, you know what? I think <laughs> – yeah, I told you Amazonians like were that. actual people. <laughs> so even in that movie, the predominant language for our two of the main characters is not English. Well, he, he has a great resume, right? Yeah. Guillermo does. But we've now come to deleted scenes. Donnie, do you know what the deleted scenes are? Oh, please tell me. Well, this is the part of the show where we talk about movies and projects that Guillermo never made that we wish that he did. If there is one movie... Maybe that's out there that you wish was made by him. What was it? Maybe it, it could be a movie that's out there. It could be a movie that hasn't been made yet. What is something that you would like to see him produce? Oh, man. Or you wish he did produce? Okay, there's two. I'll go quickly. Yeah. The first is it, it has to be Narnia. I think mm. the Chronicles of Narnia, there was, you know, a series of movies were, were awesome, but they were very clean. Yeah. Kind of kids movies or? Yeah, they were absolutely. They were what you would call family friendly. So there was just like a neatness to them. Right. Aslan is somebody that you want to cuddle with. Like you saw, I saw him on screen and I was like, oh my goodness, I want to lay down with that lion and mm -hmm. just, um, and I think there are beautiful, friendly parts of the Lord, but yeah. he's also, um, you know, Andy Minio, the great philosopher <laughs> would say, yeah. my God is good, but he's not safe. And so, and, and in Narnia, they say that as well. Yeah. It's a C.S. Lewis quote. So I, I think having Guillermo do a take where Aslan and even the, all the mythical creatures in Narnia, there's a fierceness and a darkness to them. Because in Narnia, it's, it's always winter, never Christmas. So there should be... Oh my goodness, sounds like Chicago. 
<laughs> so there there should be, you know, just this this um maybe horror to Narnia that I don't think we got in in the existing films. So that's the first Oh one. my goodness, could you imagine the slaying of Aslan directed by Del Yo. Toro? Yo. Yeah, we'd never sleep again. <laughs> oh my goodness. So that's one. Um, and then I would say the other one is, and I, it just lost my mind. You go to yours and then. Yeah, well, mine is mine is a no-brainer. I mean, if you look at the credits, you'll see his name on the screenplay. Oh. Peter Jackson. Hobbit. And I forget Fran Walsh, I think is her oh, name. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. He was supposed to make the Hobbit trilogy. Gasp. But because they were struggling to get the rights from the token estate, it ran into the production of Pacific Rim 2, I believe, and he missed his opportunity. I want to see the Hobbit movies made by Del Toro. Mm. Not by Jackson. I like that. All right. Jackson was great with The Lord of the Rings. I want to see a new, fresh take. And guess what? We missed it. Hey, they bring back movies all the time. They could bring back this yeah. chili. In 10 years, they could redo The Hobbits, and it could be dark and fierce and awfully brilliant, if you will. It could be, but yeah, I'm not Just holding saying. my breath on that one. <laughs> okay, and my last one is Phantom of the Opera. There's wow. you know, the movie with Gerard Butler. Obviously, there's the Broadway musicals. But I would love to see a really dark, terrifying phantom. That's, that's my other one. And it's a musical. We haven't seen Guillermo del Toro do a, a musical, so that would be also very cool. Yeah. Finally, we come to post-production, where we give you our final takes. What lasting impact will del Toro have? Which themes have a long-lasting influence? Let me go ahead and give you my first take. I've enjoyed Guillermo del Toro, but I never studied him. So in preparation for this podcast, being able to watch lots of film interviews, watch other people's thoughts, listen to other people's podcasts on who he is. It was so eye-opening to see his resolve to his art um, and his resolve to tell the stories that are important to him. So one of those is that individuals, particularly men in positions of power and influence, seem to be the true antagonists of his stories. The villains are never creatures or monsters. They're those that are taking advantage of others. Yeah. So that's my take one. Okay. What's your take, Robert? My take is that horror is actually something that we can embrace. Okay. For a long time, I thought I hated horror movies. I know, same. Then I started to dig a little bit deeper and I said, wait, I like horror when it's done in a very specific way, when it's done in a thoughtful way to bring out a point or a story or an illustration. And I think that he uses it in such a powerful way to bring out these messages mm-hmm. that he's changed my mind. You know what? I love certain types of horror. And it's interesting because I think growing up, especially in the 90s, the horror for us was Halloween, Friday the 13th. Yeah. It was just... Like slasher and jump scares. Yeah, it was like gore for gore's sake. Yeah. And it was like, oh, I'm too brown for that. Like, I internalize it, and then it becomes my reality. I can't separate life from TV and movies. I was like, ah, too real. But with Guillermo del Toro, it's not just gore for gore's sake. It There's always a purpose. And with that said, don't watch his movies like during dinner. <laughs> it's true. There are some things I'm like, they well, are I can't still watch gory. that and eat. Yeah. 
it just depends on yeah. which but you actually know you're right okay cool um another take on del toro i would say is his use of fantasy and powerful imagery to tell real world stories while highlighting the harshness of the real world through these painful wounds was just so overwhelming and really cool that he could say such interesting and meaningful things in really poetic ways. Yeah, I think another one for me would be that even if you walk away from the Bible, walk away from church, walk away Mm. from God, you're still longing for hope and redemption. And Mm -hmm. his stories Mm -hmm. all have some sort of hope and redemption to them. The only thing is that he turns them into myth or you know, kind of these fantasy aspects. Mm. But the heart of every person is hope. Mm. And without the gospel, each person is left to make up their own their own truth. Wow. That's, man, that's interesting. We love us some Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Thank you, Big G. Papa yeah. G. Yeah. Del T. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, I think that was a good conversation. Yeah. I think we could keep talking forever, right? Yes, yes we could. All good things must come to an end. I just want to say, first of all, to everyone listening, thanks for joining us on this episode of Mixed Take. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us five stars on iTunes or a good review somewhere. <laughs> right? Wherever. We're not begging. We're just Same. pleading. <laughs> it, you... It'll keep the monsters away. How about that? Yes. Yeah, that's there the you promise go. we're going to make. That's right. Also, head over to worldoutspoken.com, a site preparing the Mestizo Church for cultural change, where you'll find information on consulting services, thought-provoking blog posts. I mean, some of them are just mind-blowing. Yeah. And other great podcasts, such as The Feature, Questions from the Pew, and the one and the only Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. Hey, special thanks to our producer, Michelle Perez. Thank you. Also, thanks to Emmanuel Padilla and the World Outspoken crew, of course. Uh, We hope you join us again as we continue to dive into the world of culture-influencing content creators. And until next time, cut. It's a wrap. 